Thank you, Jackie. We're in Genesis chapter 20 today, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 18, and titled the message today, Unstoppable. On any given night at a bowling alley in America, you might find someone who has bowled a 300, a perfect game. A good bowler on a hot streak can roll 12 consecutive strikes. For a competitive bowler, however, the holy grail night is a perfect series. Three consecutive perfect games, a 900. In the history of bowling, there have only been 21 perfect series. And Bill Fong was three rolls away from just that, perfection. On a January 18, 2010 league night at the Plano Super Bowl, Bill Fong had rolled 33 consecutive strikes. The crowd of fellow league members stopped to watch as on frame 34, Bill Fong gathered his ball, walked up, and rolled another strike. And then he rolled another on frame 35, and the crowd went wild. But something was wrong. Two frames back, Bill had begun sweating profusely and feeling dizzy, but he was just one roll away from history. Bill pulled the ball to his chest, took his usual five steps, and released the ball perfectly. People actually started applauding before the ball reached the pins. That's how perfect the roll was. It curved exactly where it was supposed to, made contact with the pins at precisely the right spot. Pins flew, the crowd cheered, and the number 10 pin wobbled, but settled onto its base. Standing. 899, one pin short of perfection. Heartbroken, Bill headed home. The dizziness that began on frame 34 had not improved. Bill staggered into his bathroom and threw up. The walls continued to spin. Bill was having a stroke. Already struggling with high blood pressure, the events of that Monday evening turned a delicate situation into a deadly one. But Bill never realized he had suffered a stroke until he had another one later. His doctor found scar tissue and was told about the league night. The only thing that saved Bill on the night of uh, the 899, that number 10 pin staying up. Had the last pin fell, Bill's doctor feels certain that his body, already in the midst of a stroke, would have pushed his blood pressure even higher. That most likely would have killed Bill immediately on lane 28. So what felt like the worst thing that could happen turned out to be the very thing that saved Bill's life. Now, although the article did not mention Bill's faith or lack thereof in Christ, we do know that believers can have confidence in God's good and sovereign plans for their lives despite disappointments, confusion, and failures. God may have a better purpose that we can't imagine with our limited perspective. And that's so true, and when we get into this passage of Scripture, you're going to understand how this illustration fits together with this passage of Scripture. It's, you know... God is unstoppable in his plans, and sometimes we have to go through some difficult things in order uh, to, to find that out. Growing up, our family had always lived in a parsonage. My dad was a pastor. <clears throat> uh, retired after 45 years of pastoring, and then he kept doing interim work, so I don't know when he actually retired. I'm not even sure he's still retired, but, um, but uh, from the time I was two years old until 17, our family had never owned a home. And so when my parents felt a call to plant a church in Birmingham, Alabama, we uh, had, a, had to find a house to live in. And that was the first time my parents had ever had to buy a home, so everything was new. 
Grace Ministries was the organization that had the vision to plant multiple churches in Birmingham from various denominations. That ministry had a real estate agent associated with it that made himself available to uh, any of the pastors who were moving. And so he asked my parents what kind of neighborhood they were hoping to reach and then showed our family several houses in a particular neighborhood. And after seeing the one house, all five of us got back into the car and said the same thing. That's the house. That's it. My parents have lived in that house for 34 years. They've added on to the back. They're in the process of redoing the kitchen, which is like the final um, uh, renovation that they need to do to bring it, you know, everything up to newer standards and such. And so we knew that God had led us to that particular house. But the story even goes a little deeper than that. The previous owners of the house were both doctors. So you probably guessed it. The wife became our family practice doctor for many, many years. Like God just kept providing, right? In incredible ways. And God's sovereignty was evident through our move from Pennsylvania to Birmingham. His plans for us never failed. Now, every one of us probably has a testimony of when God's plans have succeeded in our lives. Perhaps the testimony is about a relationship. You know, you thought, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to find the perfect husband or the perfect wife. Ah, oh, when is this ever going to happen? And then you see God working out his plan at just the right time. Maybe it's about a financial success that you were like, oh, no, how are we ever going to pay for this or how are we going to take care of that? And, and God just provided in incredible ways. His plan didn't fail. It could even be about a job or being accepted to a particular college or university. And as we look back over our lives, we can probably share multiple stories of how God's plan didn't fail us. We may not have recognized it at the time. And of course, time and hindsight give us clarity and a different perspective. It would seem as though time and hindsight had not given Abraham and Sarah clarity, though. They use a familiar ruse 25 years later with a different ruler and got similar results. They were still struggling to trust the Lord with their fears about the people of this new land that God had called them to. What they uh, learned again was that even though their fears um, caused them to mislead another ruler, God's plan could not be stopped. This truth is one that we need to learn and embrace as followers of Jesus Christ And what we're going to learn today is this big idea that God's plans never fail. We can hold on to that truth. His plans never fail. And so as we just let that sink in for a moment, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit the message to the Lord in prayer? Oh, Lord, we come to you. And we need your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Because, Lord, from our human perspective... (laughs) Sometimes it's hard for us to understand your plans, your timing. Sometimes it doesn't even make human sense to us, Lord God. And that's because of our limited knowledge, our limited wisdom, Lord God, as finite people. So, Lord, we worship you today that you are an infinite God, that what you do far exceeds what we can even imagine that, Lord God, you work outside our time and space. And so we worship you for that today. Lord, we just trust in you. We trust in the the truth and the fact that your plans never fail. And, Lord, whatever we're going through right now, I pray that we would embrace that truth. We just ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
all of the points today start with the, the letter R. So ruse is the first one. Let's look at that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. This is what God's word says. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, <clears throat> she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. So most scholars agree that Abraham is moving from his current location, which was near Hebron by the trees of Mamre. He takes his entire family <clears throat> and clan and moves them to the region of the Negev. So you see in the, in the map here this morning the, uh, the two areas. Uh, Hebron is up there in the top, and then this region is sure is on the far right, and Kadesh, Barnea is on the far left. And so somewhere in that region is where he's moved his clan. And we're not given the exact location, but rather just somewhere between those two areas. And they were staying between Kadesh and Shur. This was the same region where Hagar had fled to after being mistreated by Sarah. We see that in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. It was here that the Lord spoke to Hagar and promised her many descendants, as we see in, again, Genesis 16, 8 to 14. But at some point, <clears throat> I, I think the rest of the clan remains in the region of the Negev with all of the flocks and herds and everything. And it appears that at least Abraham and Sarah moved north to stay in Gerar for a period of time. So that's back up uh, close to Gaza. Uh, and so you see that again on the map this morning. <clears throat> and like I said, he pro Abraham probably left his flocks and herds in the care of his servants in the Negev. And while they're in Gerar, Abraham uses the same half-truth that he used 25 years earlier with Pharaoh in Egypt. Abraham tells the people of Gerar that Sarah is his sister. We already know that Abraham and Sarah had the same father but different mothers. So they were half-siblings. And because of this half-truth, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sends for and takes Sarah as part of his harem. That's pretty significant. Sarah is now between 89 and 90 years old. And like this, this king is like, hey, i got to take her to be part of my harem. It's perhaps more for political reasons than uh, for maybe her beauty. So in the Egyptian episode, 25 years earlier, Pharaoh took Sarah because of her beauty. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 14 to 16, all the people of Egypt were like, she's pretty attractive. And they went and they said to Pharaoh, you should check this, this lady out. And he did, and he well, she looks pretty good. Well, I'm going to take her into my, into my harem. So there's no mention of the reason why Sarah is taken by Abimelech, but it's, again, perhaps based on the desire of Abimelech to forge an economic relationship with the Abraham clan. That's what Matthews tells us. Sarah has described herself as worn out in Genesis chapter 18, verses 11 to 13. So again, it's probably not because uh, he found her attractive. All of this played an important role in protecting Sarah and preserving God's plan for the promised son to come from Abraham and Sarah, not Abimelech and Sarah. You see, God's plans never fail. And that leads us to the first principle today, that God is patient with his people. Aren't you glad for that today? He was patient with Abraham and Sarah. We know that God's plans never fail, but sometimes we in our humanness put God through the ringer, don't we? We put him to the test. He has to bring plagues and illness uh, to others in order to preserve his plans. He has to threaten death and command that certain things be returned in order to set things right. And how have we put God through the ringer as it pertains to his plans for us? 
I know that for Judy and I, we moved all over the country and served with various ministries before being obedient to the call to pastoral ministry. And when I uh, finally told Judy that you know, God was calling me to be a pastor, she, she said, well, I always thought that I was going to be a pastor's wife. You know, God had placed that in her heart many years before as a teenager, that she was going to be a pastor's wife, and it just took me a long time to, to be obedient to that, right? I kind of was putting God through the ringer a little bit. Not that what I was doing was bad, right? I was working for ministries. I was doing good work, but it was not within God's plan. And so what does it look like for you? What things did you have to go through before submitting to God's plan for your life? Perhaps you're still putting God through the ringer because you're resisting his call in your life right now. And God's patience is so amazing, isn't it? He is willing to wait on us. He's willing to allow us to go down a different path until we realize we need to be on his path for our lives. That was a 13-year journey for me of doing all these other things and then finally coming in the pastoral ministry. The first next step might be for you today, and that's to thank the Lord for his patience and submit to his plan for my life. Boy, if you, most of us know what that is. It, it, we're not trying to go, I wonder what God wants me to do with my life. No, we know. And we know whether or not we're inside his will and plan for our lives. And I, I'm encouraging you today, if you know what his plan is for you and you're not following his plan, get off this side road that you're on and get on his path. Begin to follow him. That's what this next step is all about. God was certainly patient with Abraham and Sarah, even when they used the sister act again 25 years later. Their deception had adverse consequences, not only for them, but also for others. In his commentary, Wearsby uh, quotes Charles Spurgeon as saying this, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Isn't that great? And then Wearsby goes on, he says, When we deliberately disobey God, we suffer both from the consequences of our sins and from the chast- chastising hand of God unless we repent and submit. So like, God doesn't let us sin successfully. He doesn't let us stay uh, in, in that uh, level of sin. He wants us to be obedient to him. I want to read this passage to you. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. And listen to what God's word says. And, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers discipline, uh, uh, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Isn't that powerful? That's what this is all about. Is this taking place, being disciplined? We see Abimelech's reaction to this deception then in verses 
uh, 3 through 13. That's our second point today is reaction. But let's look at verses 3 to 8 first. We see his reaction with God. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the, in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. So we see this reaction with God. God came to Abimelech in a dream. Pharaoh was aware of Abraham's deception because of the serious diseases that he, he and his household had experienced. Pharaoh's like, something's up. Why is everybody getting sick? <laughs> and he begins to perhaps inquire about that and finds out why. This time, God uses a dream to expose the ruse. Dreams were a common form of communication or revelation in the ancient Near East, as Walton points out. And then Wolke goes on and says, Dreams were a mode of revelation even to those outside of the covenant. So God's even talking to people who, aren't, who don't believe in him. In these dreams, he's giving them revelation and understanding what's happening and what's going on. He does that with Abimelech here. God tells Abimelech that he is as good as dead. And the reason he gives is that the woman he's taken uh, into his harem is a married woman. Even within the pagan culture, adultery was a very serious offense. Walton uh, mentions this. He says, In Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Canaan, adultery is regularly referred to as, quote-unquote, the great sin, and is considered extremely detrimental to society to the extent that it is uh, characteristic of anarchy. Hittite laws, Middle Assyrian laws, and the Code of Hammurabi all contain legislation against adultery. So like, this was pretty serious, even within pagan cultures. Matthews goes on, he says, Mosaic legislation required the death penalty for adultery, both the man and the woman. We see that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. Here's what they say. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife... With the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. And so Abimelech realizes the seriousness of God's revelation to him. And so he pleads his case. We see that in verses 4 and 5. The narrator tells us that Abimelech had not gone near Sarah, meaning that he had not been intimate with her. Abimelech wants to know if God will destroy an innocent nation. This is Abimelech's view of his kingdom. We're, we're innocent. But Abimelech's not saved. He's lost. He's not a follower of God. Abraham is a follower of God. He is saved, and he's done this deception. He explains to the Lord that Abraham and Sarah both said that they were brother and sister. He confesses that he took Sarah with a clear conscience and clean hands. It was unintentional. Abimelech's sin was one of ignorance, not negligence. There was potential for deliberate action, which would have been adultery, without knowledge. And so God acknowledges Abimelech's plea, as we saw in verses 6 and 7. God replied, uh, his reply and his command were this. 
the dream is all still happening. God confirms that Abimelech took Sarah with a clear conscience, but he is the one who kept Abimelech from sinning against him. And God kept Abimelech from touching Sarah. This leads us to the second principle this morning, that God is sovereign. His sovereignty means that he has the right to rule, and he rules rightly in our lives. God was completely in control of the circumstances that Abraham and Sarah had created, which had the potential to mess up his plans for the promised son. But you see, God's plans never fail. He's in control because he's sovereign. He protected the purity of Sarah by his sovereign power. And God, in his sovereignty, is in complete control of the circumstances that we create. Those circumstances have the potential to mess up his plans for our lives. But God knows exactly what he, he's doing and what he needs to do to get us back on track. He may be stopping you from touching something. He may be stopping you from moving. He may be stopping you from taking another job. He may be stopping you from looking at certain things. He may be stopping you from pursuing a particular relationship. He may be stopping you from doing something that will be detrimental to you, whether physically, financially, emotionally, or spiritually. And you're wondering, what's going on? Why can't I get this thing accomplished? Why? And it's because you're, you're trying to fight against God and his plan. Instead of trying to push forward, we need to thank God for stopping us. We need to recognize that that's not the way he wants us to go. God commands Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham. Abraham is identified as God's prophet. God calls Abraham his, his own prophet. Abraham's deception has not negated his salvation or standing with God. His deception has not rendered God's promise void that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. God will use Abraham and his prayer to bring healing to Abimelech and his household. And that leads us to the third principle today. God uses his people in spite of their failures. Aren't you glad? Because <laughs> we kind of mess things up from time to time, don't we? And yet he'll still use us. Romans chapter 11 verse 29 says this, For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. As Christians we will still choose to sin sometimes. And when we choose to sin, God does not take back the spiritual gifts or the calling that he's placed on our lives. He doesn't go, oh, nope, okay, I can't trust you anymore. No, nope, I'm taking that back. No, he's given those to us as a gift that are irrevocable. He still uses that calling and those gifts in spite of our sin for his glory. Corson in his commentary says this, I have found that the thing which hobbles so many people in their service for the Lord is thinking God can't use me. God wouldn't use me. God won't use me because I've failed so miserably. I've botched it so badly. And that's the voice of the enemy. For the voice of the Lord says, because you didn't earn the gifts I gave you or the calling I sovereignly placed upon you, there's no way you can lose them either. But how many of us are living with the enemy's lie that God cannot, would not, or will not use you because you, of your failures? Are you there today? Do you feel that? Do you sense how you're like, God's never going to use me? And I, I'm here to tell you today, <clears throat> today is the day to put that lie in its place, to put that lie to rest. That's not the voice of God. He tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's for us as followers of Jesus Christ. When we still choose to fail and give in to that temptation, there's a way of, of being made pure and clean again. And it's through just confessing that before the Lord. 
God can, would, and will use your calling and your gifts in spite of your failures. Our testimony and witness may be hurt because of the failures, but our ability to pray for and serve others is not affected. Yeah, so you know, like your family member that knows the failures that you've been through, and they don't want to hear about Jesus from you. Maybe it's a coworker that's like, I know what you've done. And if you're that way, then I don't want to be a part of this Jesus thing that you're telling me about. So we might lose our testimony. We might lose our witness. But that doesn't mean we can't continue to pray for that person. To continue to cry out to God on their behalf. And that's the second next step today is to reject Satan's lie and embrace God's truth that he can, would, and will use me in spite of my failures. We claim that today for yourself. Your failures have not negated God's spiritual gifts that he's given to you. It's not negated your salvation. It's not negated your ability to pray. It hasn't negated any of that. God was still going to use Abraham even though he had failed to trust in God's power to protect him. That's why he was using this ruse again. God tells Abimelech the result of not obeying his command. Death will be the result of his disobedience. If Abimelech refuses to return Sarah to Abraham, he and his household will die. That's a pretty good motivator, right? (laughs) Okay. All right, Lord. Now is how serious God was about making sure his plans would not fail. Abimelech takes the warning seriously. We see in verse 8, he seeks the counsel um, of others. Abimelech uh, does not waste time seeking the counsel of his officials. He is up early and calling his officials together. He confides in them about the dream he had. His officials took the warning seriously as well. They were very much afraid. They did not want to die because of Abimelech's ignorance about Sarah. We have seen Abimelech's reaction with God, but we also see his reaction with Abraham. Look at verses 9 to 13. This is his reaction uh, then with Abraham. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So again, we see Abimelech's reaction with Abraham. He asks him some questions. After consulting with those officials, Abimelech called for Abraham, and he peppers him with these questions. You know, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such guilt upon us? Uh, What was your reason for doing this? And Abimelech also scolds Abraham for doing something to him that should not have been done. We see Abraham's response then. He makes this assumption. Abraham didn't consult the Lord concerning the people of Gerar. He assumed they were like all the other inhabitants of the land. Now, keep in mind that Abraham just witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah along with two other cities in the plain because the Lord did not find ten righteous people there. So, I mean, that's why he's probably thinking, I I know the people of this land. I know what they're like. So, um, they're probably not fearing God. And we see Abraham acting independently of the Lord's guidance and direction because of fear and a lapse in faith. 
And that leads us to the fourth principle that God is pleased when we trust in him instead of ourselves. <clears throat> we see that so many times in scripture where they try to do it in their own strength without consulting God and it, it ends up not turning out so well. That's what happened with AI. You know, they come in and they walk around, uh, you know, Jericho and, and the walls fall down. And they're like, well, we don't need to consult God about how to do it. We know how to do this. We're going to go up to AI and route them. And they lost, right? <clears throat> because they didn't consult God. And then we see this mode of operation from the time that Abraham set out on his own and separated from his father's household. He and Sarah have been using the quote-unquote sister act as their standard mode of operation when entering new territories. It's like, hey, just do this. And, and <clears throat> it's worked in the past, so they continue to use it even 25 years later. And Abraham pulls the, if you love me, card, right? And asks Sarah to tell everyone that he is her brother. If you really love me, Sarah... You'll do this for me, right? Ah. Abimelech must have accepted Abraham's response to his questions because he provides reparations to he and Sarah. That's the third point. <clears throat> Look at verses 14 to 16. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. <clears throat> so Pharaoh had given Abraham sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, and servants prior to knowing the truth about Sarah, perhaps as a bride price. Abimelech gives Abraham sheep, cattle, servants, and first choice of land after he finds out the truth about Sarah. And this was for, uh, to recompense what had happened. Abimelech obeys the command of the Lord and returns Sarah to Abraham. And Abimelech also gives Abraham a thousand shekels of silver. That's 25 pounds of silver. That's a significant amount. This helps us to put it into perspective. It's a very generous amount. Uh, Matthews points out that Abraham paid 400 shekels of silver for the cave at uh, uh, Machpelah where he buried Sarah. So that was 400. This is a thousand. Um, if we keep looking at some of these other things, Jacob purchased a piece of land in Shechem for 100 pieces of silver, and Joseph was sold into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Poor guy wasn't very valuable, right? <laughs> Sarah, wow, 1,000. Wolke states a Babylonian laborer usually paid a half shekel per month would have to work 167 years to earn such a sum. So Abimelech was wealthy, and he's making Abraham more wealthy. The silver was given to Abraham as a way to, of restoring Sarah's honor in the eyes of those who knew about Abimelech taking her into his harem. It was done to hide Sarah's shame. And Abimelech did not sh blame Sarah, which is what is meant by her being completely vindicated. And after reparations are made, Abraham prays for Abimelech and his household. And so we see restoration that takes place in verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his, his wife, and his slave girls so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abraham's prayer released God's healing power. It wasn't anything that Abraham did. It was all God. God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls. We're not told what Abimelech needed healing from, but it probably had something to do with him not being able to able to engage in sexual relations. 
And we know that God had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household, so now the women would be able to conceive again. And the final principle this morning is this. God answers the prayers of his people on behalf of others. It probably took a long time for Abimelech to trust Abraham. He was probably cautious whenever Abraham spoke to him. Warren Wearsby highlights what this one lie cost Abraham. It cost him his character, his testimony, his ministry. Instead of being a source of blessing, he was a cause of judgment. He almost lost Sarah and Isaac, and it cost him his peace. He watched Isaac repeat the same lie years later, as we'll see in Genesis 26, verses 7 to 11. Perhaps our lies have cost us some of the same things. We may have lost our character, testimony, and ministry to family and friends. They don't want anything to do with Christianity because of what, they, what we have said or done. Fortunately, when we repent of our sins, the Lord forgives us and restores us. We still have the ability to bless our family, friends, and even our enemies through prayer. John Corson says, When I pray for my enemies, not only does it release blessing upon them, but it keeps me from getting involved in a cycle of bitterness which will only destroy me. I don't know about you, but I've experienced that. Or I've just prayed for them that God would bless them, bring healing to them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45 say this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And so maybe the final next step today is for you, and that's to pray for the healing, prosperity, and well-being of my family, friends, and enemies. As we review today, do you need to thank God or thank the Lord for his patience in your life? Are you ready to submit to the Lord's plan for your life? If so, make the changes necessary. Is it time to reject the lie and embrace uh, the truth that God can, would, and will use you in spite of your failures? And then the last question is, whom do you need to be praying for today? At Idaville Church, we need everyone to embrace God's truth that he will use us in spite of our failures. We need everyone to be serving. Pastor Mark handed out spiritual gift surveys during the Mission Possible meeting last week. And our hope is that everyone will take the time to complete one of those surveys so we can serve in our area of giftedness. If you didn't get one of those, just be sure to see Pastor Mark. He'll make sure to get you one of those. As we conclude today, <clears throat> just a story from the 19th century. Henri Dunant was a wealthy 19th century Swiss banker. He was sent to Paris by the Swiss government to work on a business deal with Napoleon. He arrived only to be informed that Napoleon was off fighting a war against the Austrians in Solferino, Italy. So Henri Dunant got back into his carriage and set his horses galloping down to the battlefront. He got there just in time to hear the bugles blast and see the thundering charge of Napoleon's troops. Dunant had never before witnessed a ghastly carnage of war. He watched in horror as cannonballs tore through human flesh and acres of land became heaped with uh, maimed and dying men. Henri Dunant was so devastated that he remained at the front for weeks helping doctors tend to the wounded in churches and nearby farmhouses. As his re after his return to Switzerland, Dunant um, continued to be haunted by the image of war he had seen in Italy. He could not keep his mind on banking, becoming so distracted that he lost his fortune. Yet even with his career derailed and his plans askew, he had a sense of God's sovereignty in all that had occurred. Of this time, he later wrote, I was aware of an intuition, vague yet profound, that this was God's will. 
it seemed to me that I had something to accomplish as a sacred duty and that it was destined to have fruits of infinite consequence for mankind. And indeed it was. Out of his depression and failure, after following the wrong road to Italy, Henri Dunant founded the Red Cross, which has saved millions and millions of lives and given aid to the countless victims of war and disaster over the years. For establishing this organization, he received the first Nobel Peace Prize. Isn't it amazing? Like God had a plan for Henri Dunant's life. And it wasn't banking. And he put him in the right situations to go through something very, very difficult in order that Henri Dunant would recognize that he needed to make a change in his life. And you see, God's plan for Henri Dunant did not fail. It took time. But he got him right where he wanted him to be. And how many of us are familiar with the Red, you know, the Red Cross and the great work that they do? And so I encourage you today, boy... God might be having you go through some difficult things right now because you're not where he wants you to be. And I encourage you to listen to him because his plans for you will never fail. And you're going to be just filled with joy and peace and contentment when you get right where he wants you to be. And so as the worship team comes, would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, just this reminder that your plans never fail, even though we might try to side rail or derail them, sidetrack them by, by doing our own thing, Lord God. And we just thank you that, that that doesn't negate your plans, but Lord, you know exactly what needs to happen so that we might get back on that plan, on that path that you have for us. And so Lord, we just commit ourselves to you now. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work in each heart and mind. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.